Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passions for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, even freaking astronauts. Yes, it's STEM for those of us who are still rooting for Pluto as a planet. (laughs) I want it to be a planet. (laughs) Okay, I realize that I must talk about my love of um, animals and insects and reptiles because a bunch of people all separately sent me the same news story about a tiny chameleon. What? Yes. So scientists discovered a tiny sunflower seed-sized subspecies of chameleon that may well be the smallest reptile on Earth. I'm going to show you the photo. Do you see that? That's the chameleon on someone's fingertip. What? Yes. They, I think they only found two of them on the island of Madagascar, and it's a nano chameleon. It has a body that is 13.5 millimeters long, making it the smallest of all the roughly 11,500 known species of reptiles. So, Jeez. I'm really into this chameleon. It's, will you show me the picture one more time? Absolutely. It's like it's it's so small. It's on it's balanced on the tip of a person's finger and it is truly the width of one person's finger. It's so small. What would be hunting it that it would need to change colors to blend in? Mm. I'm like it's so tiny. It seems like it could just, you know, hide under a half a leaf. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what's slightly larger than your thumb that could be going after it. <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Diana, how was your week? It was good. I will say at work, and I play a forensic scientist on TV, I had to have a really, really gross scene. And when I walked into the room where we were rehearsing, the body looked so real. I was like, is that real? Because from far away, it looked really real. And everybody was like, no, what what are you crazy? And I was like, oh, 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 cool, cool, cool. But Props did such a good job that I could not look at it. I immediately got hot. The room felt small. And I knew that I was probably going to faint. My stomach felt awful. Um, And so I had to pop my contacts out to do the scene. I had to secretly do the scene blind. And I am a terrible actress when I can't see. (laughs) You know, I got contacts in uh, the end of my freshman year of high school. But before that, from essentially third grade until then... I would do every play I ever did without my glasses on. So I have had that experience, too, of acting. And one time it resulted in me tripping and falling in no. front of a live audience. <laughs> Were you okay? I was fine. It was more embarrassing than it was dangerous. Uh, okay, so we have a very exciting new element of the podcast this week, which is that we have a special guest for our story time. Do you want to intro who our special guest is going to be, Diana? Yes, I do. It is my good friend, Keiko Agena, who played Lang Kim on Gilmore Girls and is currently Dr. Adrisa Tanaka on Prodigal Son. And we are going to be getting into the story of the first African-American woman aviator, Bessie Coleman. Oh, it's so exciting. And then today's episode, our main interview, we got to speak with astronaut Jessica Meir, which is so exciting. I know we had someone from NASA last week, but we are obsessed with space. Well, we have to be. There's just so much exciting stuff going on right now. Uh, The Perseverance rover just landed on Mars. We're thinking about going back to the moon. So our first two episodes had to be about space. Yes. And 
this was the first time that you and I got to do an interview together. Yes. Yay. Yeah. Sorry. I got so excited. I hit my microphone. (laughs) I threw my hands up in the air and said, yay. And I hit my own microphone and almost hit myself in the face. (laughs) Uh, As you can tell, (laughs) listeners, we're very excited. Too excited. excited. (laughs) Um, So Jessica started her career as a biologist uh, who studied the behavior of animals in extreme conditions. And then she became an astronaut. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And she got to go to space and return to Earth during the pandemic. So wild. So (laughs) so we talk about that unbelievable experience. And now she's already training for another mission. Um, And she told us that she may be the first woman to step foot on the moon. Wow. So, I mean, her whole story is pretty incredible. Um, But we had to start the conversation at the beginning when she was a kid who loved biology and dreamed of going to space. I love this because truly in my mind, I was like, astronauts just go to like astronaut school or something. So I loved learning about the actual journey of someone who became an astronaut. (laughs) All right, let's take a listen. So... One of the things we like to ask everyone for this podcast is about their own curiosity. So for you, can you remember back to a time in your life where you really felt your curiosity spark? Yeah, I think it was really from the time that I was a small child when I first started feeling that innate curiosity and asking questions and wondering about the world around me. And I give credit to that a bit, you know, to my parents and to my family. First of all, I'm the youngest of five kids. So I had these four older siblings always trying to emulate them and looking up to them and trying to do everything that they did, you know, whether it be academics and math and science or arts or sports or music, all of these things. I just felt like I had to roll it all into one. And I also grew up in a small town in northern Maine. So lots of trees and forests around. And my mom is from Sweden, and Swedes often have this very close connection to nature. So I think a combination of those things with my mom, you know, bringing me outside and cross-country skiing in the snow from the time I was two years old and pointing things out, all of the, the natural things around me, I think that's why I really fell in love with nature and living things, and in particular with biology. That became my favorite subject from the time that I was a kid. And that really, I think, just drove that innate curiosity and this spirit of exploration, which I would say really has driven me from from then in terms of all of the things that I was attracted to and, and wanted to do, whether it be skydiving or scuba diving or learning how to fly airplanes, this kind of just curiosity about the world around me and and pushing the envelope a little bit further and trying to understand more about everything out there on the planet and then off the planet as well, of course, in the end. (laughs) Wow, that is so cool. (laughs) And you talk about your background and it honestly does sound really diverse. So let's talk about your journey in some detail because like you said, you've had some really interesting intersections of interests. (laughs) So you fell in love with biology when you were a kid. And you also dreamed of becoming an astronaut. Uh, And then you got to study biology in college and got a master's degree in space studies and a PhD in marine biology. So how do you think all of this comes together for you? I think that exact spirit of exploration, like we were just talking about, that's what brings it all together, having that curiosity for the world around me and just wanting to keep asking questions and learn more. And I think the common thread upon all of those things between all of those things that have really driven me are things that involve both a mental and a physical challenge. So it's not just one or the other, and it's something that's really all-consuming when you're in an environment that is challenging you both physically and mentally. I found that's really when I'm the happiest and the most content. I think one of the first times I really felt that was when I was working for my PhD work in the Antarctic. And so there you are as a graduate student, and you've put a lot in this academically and scientifically in terms of utilizing the scientific method and designing this experiment. But then there's this whole host of logistics to make sure that you can bring that experiment to fruition. And that's complicated even more when you're trying to do an experiment in the Antarctic in this very harsh environment. And we're building these microprocessors that we're going to put on the backs of animals to measure different things about their physiology. So 
such a multifaceted project going from coming up with a hypothesis to designing and building and testing the hardware, doing so for an, in a very harsh environment, like the cold extreme weather in the Antarctic, but also for an animal that's diving underwater. So now you're talking about waterproofing and pressure proofing these things, and then traveling to the destination to carry out the work where, you know, one day, again, you're thinking all about the scientific process and the data and everything that's driving this. The next day, you might be out in the snow shoveling the entire day because a storm has blown in and you need to protect the campsite and protect the penguins that are there. So going into these environments, which utilize all these different areas of my brain, but also my body, I love to be outside and I love the natural beauty in the world and especially somewhere as extreme as the Antarctic. You know, all of those things, I just felt so content. I remember feeling just having a smile on my face the whole time, just like I did when I was on the space station and how intense that felt. I don't think that I'd really had that kind of intense blend of all of those factors together like that. I mean, <laughs> it's so incredible. I will also say right from the back that I can't hear the phrase physical challenge without thinking of like double dare physical challenge. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so that is definitely happening in my brain. But also, holy moly, that woman is incredible. I have a hard time because I am such um, a sedentary person. So she's talking about she's never more happy than when she's challenging herself in such an extreme way physically and mentally and talking about the smile on her face as she's working in the Antarctic under those conditions and also the intellectual rigors of the the scientific experiments that she's trying to do. It's just so admirable, but not me. But not me. But not me. I did a movie where <laughs> I knew I was going to have to do physical things and I knew I was I'm not very strong. Okay. And so um, shooting out of town, all the actors are staying in the same hotel. And I thought, I should probably try and work on this. So I went to the hotel gym <laughs> and I got the lightest hand weights they had. I think they were three pound weights. And I'm also, um, I can't really run that well. So I'm walking on the treadmill um, with three pound hand weights um and then one of the actors from the movie walked in and i knew that we were in scenes together but i had yet to meet him and so his introduction to me <laughs> was me slowly walking on a treadmill with three pound weights and telling him about how i really want to work on my upper body strength to prepare for the oh scenes my gosh. um well i mean jessica clearly <laughs> has a different approach to life than um i do do you feel like working in the Antarctic prepared you for doing spacewalks in those conditions? Yes, absolutely. So I think that my career, my previous career and the things that I did actually had a very large part in terms of getting this job, first of all. So being an astronaut is a very, very operational job. You know, just because my background is as a scientist, it doesn't mean that when I'm on the space station, I'm only doing science and somebody else is doing a spacewalk and somebody else is fixing the toilet. We all have to be able to do everything. So when the interview board is there and I've made it to get an interview for an astronaut candidate position, they're looking at me and they're saying, okay, well, she kn we know she's academically successful. We're not worried about how she'll do in terms of the scientific experiments that she'll conduct and how to think in that way. But is she operational enough? Can she, does she have that fortitude, that stamina, that grit, as we call it, to do a spacewalk? which is really the most mentally and physically challenging thing that we do. Can she fix things? The toilet breaks and the light bulb needs to be changed. We can't call a plumber an electrician. We have to be really diversified and have this kind of operational skill set that's really important. So I would say if, if a candidate comes in that's somebody like a jet pilot, for the, a military pilot, they know that that person is very operational. So they've already shown those skills in their previous career. But if someone comes in as a scientist, they want to make sure that it's not just some stereotypically geeky lab scientist that can't do anything else, you know, that doesn't, isn't going to have that fortitude and those skills to, to do the operational component of the job as well. So I would say during the interview process, my experience in the Antarctic came out all the time. And it wasn't so much about the technical and scientific details of my research. It was more talking about 
catching emperor penguins and fixing snowmobiles and things that showed that I had that kind of diverse set of skills that would come in really handy to be an astronaut. So I think it, it definitely helped me get selected, but has certainly helped in everything that we do in the job. You know, having a background as a scientist, just having that really those honed critical thinking skills that we develop as scientists, that is so important to how we solve any problem. And then having that experience both technically with different pieces of hardware, you know, building those microprocessors, like I mentioned, for the, for the penguins, working with your body and your mind at the same time, all of that really helped just understand the way we have to operate to be successful as astronauts. I definitely later want to hear how one catches an emperor penguin. Uh, I will ask about that later. But for right now, I do want to ask um, if you remember where you were when you found out that you were selected for the astronaut class of 2013. I don't think any astronaut forgets that moment because it's such a pivotal one. And for me, it was interesting because I had applied before and I had even made it to the final round before. So I'd been on the receiving end of that call before. And just like any normal human, I expected the same result this next time, right? The first time I had interviewed, I knew that I did well. It was a great experience. I had worked at NASA before, so it was wonderful to be back here with some old friends and colleagues. And everything had gone well with the interview. When I got the call that time, it was astronaut Sunny Williams, who's one of my friends and colleagues now. And I remember her calling and saying, you know, you had a great interview. Everything went really well, but we've only selected nine people this time and you're not one of them. And, you know, that's crushing, of course, when it's this lifelong dream, but it's also kind of realistic. You know, if, if anyone expects to be selected, they probably won't be selected because their ego is probably too big. Because when you come in to the interview and you meet all these incredible people, they're just so exceptional and so interesting. During that final interview round, you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to get selected. These people are amazing. But in the end, somebody has to, and it's not just an individual that gets selected. It's really a team that gets selected. It's a whole class. And that class has to have a little bit of everyone in it, right? So it's the right place, the right time. There's a lot of luck involved. So I was in my office at the Massachusetts General Hospital. I was working there as an assistant professor through Harvard Med School and through MGH doing the same kind of comparative physiology research. So still looking at the physiology of animals in extreme environments. And I was there in the lab and I knew that the calls were going to be happening in that week. And so I had my phone there next to my computer and I saw the phone ring and it was a Houston number. So you know that this is the call. The phone rang that day and it was from the head of the selection board, Janet Kamandi at the time. And she said, well, Jessica, looks like the second time's a charm. And so I knew that meant only one thing, but I was, you know, normal human behavior. We expect what we've already, what's already happened before. And so I was, I just, I was very eloquent. I just said, really? <laughs> I couldn't really, I couldn't believe it. And I was just, what? And then it's so difficult because your dream has just come true. And then she goes on to say, would you like to come join us at the NASA Johnson Space Center and join this astronaut class? And of course, you could never say no to your childhood dream job, something I'd been thinking about since I was five years old. And then they make it really difficult because, of course, they want to do a big media announcement and they have to speak to everybody and, you know, make sure that it all comes out at the same time and that everybody has accepted the position before it's announced. So they tell you, okay, great. So now you can't tell anyone for about two weeks or so wow. you know, until the announcement's out and you're thinking what? <laughs> You've just gotten the biggest news of your life and now you can't tell anyone. Um, you know, they, they recognize like, well, you know, maybe tell your significant other or one person important to you so that you can talk about it, but you know, it has to really be kept inside for now. So that's, that makes it even more challenging, but yeah, I don't think, I think everybody remembers exactly where they were for that call. So you get accepted into the astronaut class of 2013. And then after years of training, you finally get to go to space. And when you were up there, you did something historic. You were part of the first all-woman spacewalk with your fellow astronaut, Christina Cook. Uh, I'm pretty sure you call her your space sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is. And so Christina, Andrew Morgan, and I actually, we were all part of the same class. And the spacewalk, you know, for us, spacewalks are the most mentally and physically challenging thing that we do. And they demand all of your concentration. 
So I knew that given the schedule, when I got up there, I would probably be doing a spacewalk pretty soon after arriving. And at that time, your body's still adapting, you're figuring out how to even move around inside, let alone in this very large, cumbersome, bulky spacesuit. So you're figuring all that out and you're knowing that it's the riskiest thing that we are going to do during your mission is to go out on a spacewalk. You're out there in a spacesuit and you're really your own little mini spacecraft. It's your life support system. You truly depend on it working and functioning correctly to keep you safe. And so it demands all of your concentration, especially that first spacewalk. So that's all I was thinking about was, okay, I need to make sure I'm ready with my tools, with the procedures. I know what to do to get the job done successfully in terms of the repair and upgrade that we had to do for the power channel on the space station. That was the goal of the spacewalk. And most importantly, I have to make sure that I'm keeping myself safe and keeping Christina safe. So that's the focus. Mm -hmm. So before the spacewalk and during the spacewalk, I wasn't really even thinking yet about the historical significance of what was happening um, or, you know, philosophizing at all about what it meant. (laughs) To be honest, you know, for for Christina and I, we were part of that class that was the first time we had 50% female and 50% male. So there's always been a lot of focus on that. And for us, you know, we were held to the same training standard. We all got to the same level of skills for spacewalks and everything else. So for us, you know, it didn't matter if it was a a woman or a man, we were all equally qualified. So, you know, at first I kind of looked at it that way. Like, why does this, why is this such a big deal? We're just doing our job or where we're supposed to be. But then in thinking about it more and, you know, to be honest, I was really shocked by how much attention people paid to it. I didn't expect it. Most people don't really watch spacewalks anymore. To be honest, they're pretty boring to watch if you're not actually connected to it. And to see that huge amount of enthusiasm and this outpouring of support and the interest on so many people from kids to adults of all ages and all backgrounds, and that was really meaningful for us. So there's another reason that your trip to space was unique. You launched in the fall of 2019. Is that the correct timeline? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So I launched in September of 2019. So that proved to have been a really interesting time to have been in space. (laughs) And you finally achieved your dream. You do this historic spacewalk. Then, while you're still on the space station during the first few months of 2020, the world is hit with a pandemic. What was it like witnessing that from space? Can, Can you walk us through that experience? So, so when you're on the space station, you're not inundated with news sources like we are here on the ground with alerts on your phone and all these different, you know, the radio and the internet and everything. You do have some sources of news. We do get some news stations or even podcasts uplinked to us that we request, but not, they're not real time. And they're not, you know, it's not like a continuous stream. So we have a very limited capability to even get on the regular internet outside of our own network up there. So you're definitely metered in the way that you receive news. And of course, we can also call the ground and we have a you know, constant communication with the ground, of course, with the space station resources and satellite network. We can also call from a computer to someone's cell phone, kind of like how, you know, internet protocol, how Skype would work kind of thing. So we do talk to people and we're getting some news, but really not in the same way. And as the months went by, you know, the first four months of my mission, we had a crew of six up there. And as our colleagues left the space station in the beginning of February, we knew things were getting worse. But even when they left in the beginning of February, we didn't think it was as dire as it was. And their, whole, their landing was normal. Every, all the arrangements were normal in terms of flights and getting people back and quarantine periods. But the remaining two months, you know, where things were really beginning to snowball, especially here in the U.S. and in a lot of other places. And so we're watching that from the space station. We're 250 miles up and we are very busy with our days. So if we actually hadn't been getting the news sources, we wouldn't have even known that anything happened because we're looking down on the planet and we can't see any difference. You know, the world, the planet looks as beautiful as it did the day before. And we're so busy. Our schedule didn't change. None of our mission objectives changed. So it was really kind of, there was this disconnect between everyone else's lives being completely disrupted and being affected in some way. We were the only three individuals alive that weren't being impacted by it. Wow. It sounds like a movie when you describe it like that. 
I know, I was thinking someone's going to buy the rights. And actually, I think there was a book and a movie and that's exactly what we were thinking where it was, you know, you pan up to the space station and there are these, a few humans up there and then suddenly the entire population is wiped out by some, you know, event, some catastrophic event. That's how we felt. Like we joked about that. You know, like, am I going to have to repopulate the entire planet? (laughs) Wait, and just to clarify, was every, the the people that were up there, was it all from the um, American program or were there some international astronauts up there as well? Yeah, at the time there were just three of us. It was myself, my colleague, NASA astronaut Drew Morgan, and then Oleg Skripochka. So he's a Russian cosmonaut. So there was one Russian cosmonaut and two American astronauts at the time when things were getting really bad. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it was, so it was, and it, so it stayed, it really seemed pretty surreal for us. And it was difficult for us to, to process that it was happening. And, and it also, you know, there was just this shift, just like now we feel like all we do is talk all day about COVID, right? And so suddenly all of our interviews were, were being asked about living in isolation. And do you have any tips for people? And the whole focus of everything, you know, is completely different. And then when we were getting ready to go back, another, another Soyuz spacecraft came up with our colleague, Chris Cassidy, and two Russian cosmonauts. And Chris said to us, and he really had a, a real talk to us and said, I know you guys are aware of what's happening, but it is going to be a shock. It is a different planet. You're really going back to a different planet. So you might want to spend a little bit of time processing that. Because I think, you know, for everybody else on, on Earth, they had kind of had a more gradual rollout of things changing and accepting, oh, wow, now everyone's wearing masks. And for us, you know, we hadn't even seen other humans for, in my case, seven months, for Drew, nine months. We land in a spacecraft after, you know, the culmination of this mission, our lives work, and coming back through the atmosphere in a spacecraft is another very exciting dynamic experience. And we land in the middle of nowhere in Kazakhstan, and when the hatch opens, we see all these masked people, all of the Russian search and rescue forces and a few representatives from our agency there. And they're all wearing masks, which is, of course, we weren't even used to seeing other people, let alone masked people. And, you know, even getting our NASA personnel over there and getting our airplanes so that we could fly back to the U.S. was a huge amount of work for the ground teams because all the international restrictions were in place then. And it was a huge amount of work for NASA and for the Russian Space Agency in figuring out how they were going to get us home. We actually entered a week-long quarantine period after we got back. Normally, astronauts can go home after the first night or so. Um, but because one of the hallmarks of spaceflight is this dysregulation of the immune system. So we know that there are changes to the immune system in during and after spaceflight, something to do with the physiological stress, just of not having gravity or isolation, that kind of thing. Um, but there are differences in our immune systems where astronauts will have a, a reactivation of latent viruses or they'll have some suppression of things like our T cells, which are important to our immune system. So we stayed in quarantine for a full week to make sure that they were monitoring those variables to make sure that we were healthy and, you know, wouldn't come in contact with COVID when we were already essentially immunocompromised. Do we need to buy the rights to this? Mm. Do you have some coins in your couch that we could use to buy the rights to this story? Oh, yes. I think Stitcher just gave us a development fund. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not an uncommon experience, though, for us as we're doing these interviews that we think this should be a movie or a TV show. So maybe we we should look into that. (laughs) Let's pause the conversation and take a short break. We'll be right back. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And we're back. Can we talk a little bit about um, the adjustment back to Earth? What was that like to kind of just, you know, physically adjust being back on Earth? 
it's not fun. (laughs) I wouldn't say, you know, so it's really interesting. I think as a biologist, especially, I find it really interesting because if you think about us and think about us from an evolutionary context, we've always evolved here on earth with this omnipresent vector of gravity, right? Like that is just how our bodies and our species has evolved. So you would think that coming back to what we've evolved for should be easy, but it really doesn't work that way. And it kind of makes sense if you think about the direction of forces you know, if you go up to space, you know, you're, you're, you, everything is weightless. And so getting used to that sensation of floating around, it's, first of all, just simply wonderful. But it's really interesting as a biologist to see that because you can actually feel the plasticity of the human brain and how the brain is adapting and changing to that new environment. And again, you know, this human brain has evolved forever since the beginning of our species on Earth. And suddenly, I go to space, but everything still works. And what happens is, you know, here on Earth, your brain is really used to mapping almost more with a two-dimensional, you know, of course it's three-dimensional, but we don't really use all of the three-dimensional environment here on Earth. You know, sitting here, we yeah. use kind of from here down, we put things down, everything is, is, is oriented re- relative to our feet and that gravity vector toward the ground. But when you go to space, you're suddenly utilizing that entire three-dimensional volume in terms of spatial orientation and moving around. And so you're not just using the ground, you're using the walls and you're using the ceiling. All of the spaces are are utilized surfaces on the space station. So I might be down here doing something for one minute. And then the next minute I jump up and you always feel like Spider-Man when you do that. You jump up and then now you're up there working. But again, of course, there's no difference in microgravity. But But when your brain isn't quite used to it at first, I would actually feel my brain do this kind of flip flop thing where then when I went to leave that spot, if I were up there, I wouldn't know at first which way I was facing because I had reinterpreted kind of the ground like you would here. But it was so interesting within a couple of weeks, your brain has remapped itself. You know, that plasticity of the brain has used, is now using different cues. And so I think it's kind of using more the location of things. Like I know where that window is. So I mean, that means to go to the lab is that way. And so your brain just Mm. does that, but you can actually feel the difference. And also some people, you know, the adjustment to weightlessness is, you know, not necessarily instantly easy on the human body. And it's very individual as well, uh, because of course your vestibular system is very dependent on gravity in terms of... May I ask, what does vestibular mean? Yeah. So... (laughs) So your vestibular system is your inner ears, basically. And it is all of the complex anatomy and physiology that's responsible for your balance, for your spatial awareness and orienting yourself, you know, with vertigo and dizziness, all of those things on the earth that are related to disease or motion sickness kind of thing. That's all because your inner ear is changing. Like if you're in a boat swaying and that kind of thing. So that stuff, those mechanisms are actually gravity dependent because of the action, the structure depends on anatomy for how all of that in your inner ears work. So when you go to space and you don't have gravity anymore, kind of your whole inner ear is going haywire trying to understand how to interpret it. So for some people, just like motion sickness is here on earth, for some people, they don't feel well, they feel nauseous. They might even be vomiting for a couple of days while you kind of get used to that. Just like, you know, being on a boat and, and, and motion sickness here on the ground. It's, it's a slightly different process, but it's very similar to that. I was really lucky and I didn't have that. I felt really comfortable. I didn't feel sick in the beginning. So I think I was lucky that I adapted pretty quickly to that. Um, but coming down is not as much fun because now you come down and you're not used to having any of these forces pushing down on you. When you, you land, suddenly you literally feel like someone's pushing down on you. Like, you know, if you have an older sibling or a bully and they put their hand on your head and they're, you know, holding you down, (laughs) that's how you feel because your body is used to not feeling anything pushing it down. Now it has this one G, one gravitational unit pushing you down. So I felt like I was being smushed into my chair. And when you were on the couch and you went to get up, you felt suddenly like I had aged you know, so many years because you would get really kind of stiff and, and have to get used to overcoming that gravity again. Um, but within a couple of weeks, you kind of start feeling normal. It takes a little bit longer to, to run normally, I think just because it's a little bit more of a complex motor neuron, yeah. you know, your brain and your muscles and all that firing sequence to do a complex movement like that. So it takes time, but most people feel pretty 
Some people still get that sickness again in terms of nausea and vomiting for a few days. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I didn't have that, but I just felt you feel really tired as your body's readjusting. Can you imagine that experience of actually feeling gravity for the first time in your life as an adult? No. <laughs> No. I mean, you know what? Actually, no, yes, I can. Because you know what it's similar to? Um, I imagine in gravity and buoyancy are slightly different. But I remember when we went to space camp. They <gasps> oh, called... this is right. I keep forgetting you've had these experiences. I've already been to space camp. Um, <laughs> they call the, uh, the pool the anti-gravitational tank. So there is still gravity there. But you know that feeling of when you get out of a pool mm-hmm. and you're kind of going from like you know, having the pool's buoyancy um, kind of keep you afloat to feeling all of a sudden that you have to kind of keep yourself up. I imagine it feels like a much bigger version of that. Also, as she's talking about the spatial orientation on the um, space, station, space station, there yeah. it went. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I was looking around the room in a different way. I was looking at the walls. I was looking at the ceiling. I was looking at the floor, thinking about standing on the ceiling or standing on the walls and how what the view of the room would be like. I wonder if I would feel sad when I came back to Earth that I could no longer experience the world in that way. Well, you could if you were in a Lionel Richie music video. That's true. I was also thinking of that Jamiroquai video. Where the- oh, yeah. <laughs> so... We want to talk to you about what's next. You've already realized your dream of becoming an astronaut, and you've only been back on Earth for a little under a year now, but you've already been selected to train for another mission. Can you tell us about that mission? Yeah, absolutely. It is a super exciting time to be an astronaut for all of us because for the last several years, we've been working on the Artemis missions, and the goal there is to send the first woman and the next man back to the surface of the moon. No nation has had humans on the surface of the moon since we left there in the 70s. So it's been decades now, and it's time to go back. And we, we did that with entirely different technology. And there's still so much to learn scientifically and also in terms of demonstrating all of these operations and technological feats that we need to overcome to go even further than that and eventually get to Mars. So the Artemis missions are first designed to go back to the moon. So the first Artemis mission will actually be an uncrewed, so there'll be no crew on that vehicle, on the Orion spacecraft, which has been designed and is already being built here at NASA. The Orion spacecraft and also the Space Launch System, which is the largest rocket ever built, and that's what will carry the Orion spacecraft back to the moon. The first mission will just be a test of the capsule and the rocket without people on it. And then Artemis II will have a crew of four, and it will go out around the moon. So it won't yet land, but it'll go around to the far side of the moon, even further than the Apollo missions did, and then come back. So that would be a mission of a few weeks. And then after that, Artemis III and beyond will be when we start landing humans on the surface of the moon. So that will be the really exciting part. And there are other elements involved as well. There's the gateway, which will be kind of like an orbiting laboratory around the orbit of the moon. So we can use that as a staging area to make excursions down to the surface and back and eventually utilize that as a a launching point to go toward Mars. So there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up here. I'm just wondering about what that experience would be like because she's already had the experience of being in the space station looking on at Earth. Mm-hmm. But this, you know, for whomever these astronauts are in 2024, they're going to be standing on the surface of the moon looking at the Earth. And I'm just trying to imagine what that experience would be like. I imagine the moon feels so much harder, the ground underneath mm. your feet, because I just picture it as being very dry and therefore very firm. What do you picture it as feeling like? Yes, that and also I can't even imagine the type of suit that you would have to have on to be walking on the surface of the moon. And so then feeling your body within the suit, feeling the ground as you can feel it through your boots. And then how large does the earth look when you're standing on the moon? I mean, I would love to read an account from someone who's stood on the moon of of what that feels like to look at the earth. 
because it's kind of making my palms sweat a little bit. Buzz Aldrin has an autobiography. I don't know if it's in there, but maybe we could read that. He he was on the moon. Maybe we should read it. Yeah. What is your most beautiful memory of space? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I'd say one of them is absolutely the view that you have when you're out there with nothing but looking through the visor of your spacesuit. And when you look back at the Earth, you can actually see even more color and beauty than when looking through the windows of the space station. But I think personally, the most beautiful memory I have are some of the smaller things. You know, we're so busy while we're up there, whether it's doing a repair on the inside of the space station, doing a spacewalk or doing a scientific experiment. And all of that is incredibly fulfilling and interesting. But it's you're focused, you're concentrating, you're busy. And so some of the things I think that I appreciated the most were some of the quieter moments when you had just a few minutes in the cupola to reflect and look out the window and think about what it meant where you were. And I always found myself thinking, how is this even real? I'm up here floating around the planet on a space station and everything is weightless. And just trying to appreciate that for a minute or, or having like a, a weekend morning. We didn't always get weekends off, but when we did, you know, I like to sleep. So I would sleep in and I would get up and, and my, my crewmate drew, he's a morning person. So he would already be up having his coffee and I would come in and we would just kind of be a little bit quiet for a while. He's reading his army times. I'm reading my New York times and we're just kind of coexisting and floating there. And it's just, remembering how that felt, everything is so much more fun when you're floating. (laughs) There's this sense of levity. It kind of turns everybody into a five-year-old. You know, all of a sudden you just start jumping up and down or turning around in somersaults or like cruising down like Superman. And it just makes everything so much more fun. So it's kind of those quiet moments that I miss the most when you had them. Um, Because, you know, like anything else, when you're really concentrating on something and caught up in it, you don't have the time to think about the bigger picture and philosophize about the gravity of what you're doing. Or the lack thereof. <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> See what I did there? So when you actually have those moments, when you can reflect on it a little bit more, I think those are the ones that are the, the most memorable to me and really the most beautiful moments. Well, it's so interesting because I know you famously drew a picture when you're a child of an astronaut with a flag, and that was your sort of your dream for yourself. Now you're kind of that symbol for children, you know, and I know you're talking about when you're up there and you're in the moment, you don't really have time to reflect on that. But do you ever think a child might be drawing a picture of you? (laughs) I've actually received some and it is incredibly strange to have that kind of role reversal. You know, it's still, like I said, even when I was in space, I had those moments thinking, how is this real? You know, and sitting here in a blue flight suit when those are all the heroes that I looked up to my entire life was this blue flight suit. And suddenly it's this role reversal and I'm on the other side. It is, it's sometimes still hard to appreciate, but I think it comes with enormous responsibility too, to make sure that what we're doing is, is representing all of that and you know, inspiring still and continuing to carry that forward, remembering how important those role models were for us. So it is an enormous responsibility. I definitely don't, don't wear it lightly. But yeah, it is still difficult to believe that, that now somehow I've turned into that person. But it's really just a testament to everybody. I mean, your dreams can come true, as trite as that sounds. I didn't think this dream would come true. There's such a small chance of it happening. And, and now I'm here. So it's important for people to remember. This is very cool. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you guys. Take care. Pleasure meeting all of you. Okay. Let's take one last break, and then we have got a story about a pioneering Black woman in aviation. And we're back. It's story time. And we have got such a special guest this week. Uh, She plays medical examiner Idrissa Tanaka on Prodigal Son on Fox. We have... Keiko Agena! Yay! Oh my gosh, hi. Thanks for having me. How long have you and Deanna been friends? I know that you're good friends. How long have you two known each other? Oh my gosh, I'm bad with dates. How long has it been, Deanna? I don't know. It's been so long. I don't actually, I don't feel the need to keep count. (laughs) That's cool. We had a very nerdy question for you that relates to your acting career. Um, Okay. We interviewed an astronaut. Uh, a real astronaut, and we know you've played an astronaut. Um, 
How do you shoot zero-gravity scenes in movies or television? What was your experience? You know, we had wire work, and I loved it. <gasps> really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll fess up. I'm not necessarily, sh- like, physically strong in a lot of ways, but... I do a lot of yoga and I can do, um, you know, cobra very well. And wire work, at least when you're trying to pretend like you're floating through air, is a lot of back strength. And I would go in whenever they were there to try to get extra practice time. So because of that, I got I was, quote unquote, their best wire work person. So I got to do a little bit extra as far as when they had difficult things to shoot um, because I was because of yoga, because of being able to uh, do cobra. Yeah, it was, it's so fun, though. You're going to have to write this on your actor's access, on your resume, on, like, special wire work skills. <laughs> like okay, great. So now let's get to the story. Keiko, this one is all you. This is the story of Bessie Coleman. She was the first Black woman and person of Native American ancestry to get a pilot's license. She's an inspiration to many who pursued careers in aviation. We're starting this story in 1892, dead of winter, rural Texas. So, just some decades post-slavery, Bessie grows up picking cotton. Her mother is Black, her dad is Black and Native American. They're both sharecroppers. This is the era of Jim Crow, where daily life in the South revolved around legal segregation of schools, restrooms, on buses, you name it. That's the general tone of America then. For Bessie's family, money is tight. She helps earn money by doing laundry for white people in addition to picking cotton. All the while, she's missing school and trying to educate herself on the side. She does make a huge change a little while later, though. Around 1915, she picks up everything and moves. It's almost the beginning of the Great Migration. Eventually, millions of Black people would move further north. Bessie ends up moving to Chicago. All right, so we're almost at the point where she decides to become a pilot. Generally speaking, people are still kind of fascinated with flying. Not too long ago, the Wright brothers did their thing. So seeing a machine that can fly with a pilot aboard is kind of new. Flying is still very scary and incredible. At the time, Bessie is working in a Southside Chicago barbershop as a manicurist. Her brother starts teasing her about something. He'd served in World War I, and he says a black woman could never be a pilot. Well, that just settles it for her. She decides to become a pilot and do this huge, unprecedented thing, at least partly just to prove her brother wrong. Totally worth it. She'd also been reading about European women who'd served as combat pilots in World War I and Harriet Quimby, an American woman who got a pilot's license. Feeling inspired, she applies to flying schools around the country. Of course, though, this is America of the early 1900s. No one would teach her to fly. You know what she does, though? She looks around and gets enough support to go to an aviation school in France. Can I just say how ridiculously bold that is? Moments like this are where her story is so inspiring. She says... I refuse to take no for an answer. When oppression, racial segregation, poverty, and gender discrimination gives her every reason to not see her own value, she decides to bet on herself and do something that literally has never been done by Black women before. This American woman, part Black and part Native American, learns to fly a plane in France and receives an international pilot's license. She can fly anywhere in the world. She finds freedom in the air that she's never experienced on the ground. She says, the air is the only place free from prejudices. Back in America, her story captivates people. Bessie is famous. (laughs) Newspaper headlines brand her as an aviatrix, a female aviator. Meanwhile, Bessie learns how to put on a show. These are open airplanes, meaning the pilot is exposed to the elements. And so Bessie learns dangerous stunts, like giving the controls to a co-pilot and parachuting from the plane or walking on the plane's wings while they're still in the air. Her stunts earn her the nickname Queen Bessie. She famously says, you've never lived till you've flown. 
Bessie receives a lot of coverage from Black publications, and in her own way, she's confronting racial segregation. She tours the U.S. doing air shows, but refuses to do a job if Black people can't enter through the front entrance of a building. She also dreams of opening a flying school for Black people to create the kind of opportunity she didn't have in America. One step at a time, though. She needs to buy her own plane. After years of flying borrowed ones, she saves up enough to buy a Curtis JN4. That's an open-air plane some call a Jenny. Those are designed for the military, but there was a surplus in production. So after the war, Jennies become popular for pilots used during air shows in the States. Anyway, Bessie buys herself a Jenny and travels to California to pick it up. She plans to do an air show with her new plane, but as she takes off... Her motor stalls and the plane nosedives into the ground. The crash fractures some ribs and breaks her leg. She didn't quit, though. That's not the end of the story. She takes a little time to recover, but she's back to being a daredevil soon enough. In 1926, she buys another Jenny. During flight practice, she sits unharnessed in the plane's cockpit. She's trying to figure out the logistics of a stunt when something does go wrong. Bessie dies at 34 years old. Bessie never got to open a flying school, but she still inspired many Black people to become pilots, including the Tuskegee Airmen. If you want to learn more about Bessie Coleman, there's more of her story at the National Women's History Museum website. Just go to womenshistory.org. Wow. You know, I I just, I've always really admired Bessie Coleman. Yes. And, you know, I, I read something in the New York Times that actually Dr. Mae Jemison, who was the first black female astronaut to go to space, carried with her a picture of Bessie Coleman. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. You know, my dad is the one who told me about Bessie Coleman's story. I think I've mentioned before that he was a pilot. Mm-hmm. And I actually brought something that I always carry with me. Um which is his Negro Airmen International card. Wow. Um, and it's from 1973. Uh, he was so proud of having his pilot's license. Uh, I, I do not have mine. <laughs> you should see me on the 101. I don't have one, but um, I was always proud of him. Did, did your dad ever tell you about what inspired him to become a pilot? He was a pair. My dad was a paratrooper in the army, and he said that he got tired of jumping out of the planes, and he wanted to be in one when it landed. <laughs> so, uh, <yeah. laughs> wow! Thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's incredible. Yeah. So, how did you feel speaking to an astronaut? Um, how did I feel living my wildest dream? I felt <laughs> great, and I just remembered something. I went on Instagram a little bit ago, and I asked people what questions they had for an astronaut. And we actually got to ask Jessica a bunch of those questions. So we're going to be sharing some of the answers on social media. Just make sure to follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's my name, at Deanna Reasonover. And we're going to be sharing even more of her very cool answers on our bonus episodes. How did you feel? She's so lovely and gave us such great thoughtful answers and just I felt like has a disarming presence like she put me at ease. You have a lot of astronaut interviews under your belt. <laughs> what what number is this for you? I think this now makes four astronauts. Girl. I've... <laughs> your next one's going to be in space. <gasps> oh my goodness. I I both got very excited and very nervous when you said that because I was thinking about what she was talking about. Some people have the response of when they get to space and they just feel very sick and start vomiting. And I'm like, I think that would be me. (laughs) This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon with help from Kimmy Gregory. Our theme music and engineering is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Catherine Seifer. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.